following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. So like I said, we're 10 weeks now into this 20-week series. We're looking at the first 12 chapters of John. We'll finish uh, the latter half of John in uh, the new year, starting in February 2015. But we've got another 10 weeks to go in this first half of John, and uh, we've seen up until this point um, that the, the theme we're running with, who is Jesus, is really appropriate because John has structured his gospel to answer that question. Uh, he's very thorough, uh, he mentions a lot of detail, but the big idea for John is that this book is written to show us something about who Jesus is, to reveal to us, like he says uh, later in chapter 20, uh, I think it is, that uh, he's written this, he's recorded these signs that Jesus did to show us that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that in believing in him, we might have life, eternal life in his name. And so John records these signs. You saw one a couple of weeks ago when the bishop was here, the feeding of 20,000 25,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children, that sign didn't exist just to point to itself. We shouldn't get overwhelmed and preoccupied with the fishes and loaves. Rather, it's a sign that points to a greater reality, which is Jesus is God. Jesus creates out of nothing, just like God did in the beginning. And And John says he has written these signs down to show us that reality. And so hopefully that's what you're getting each and every week here as you come together and as we make our way through the book of John. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And we're going to see this morning that he's not just the God of creation, not just a God who can perform miracles and signs, but he is the God of all satisfaction. The God of all satisfaction, deep Lifelong, eternal satisfaction. During my holidays, I've been reading a book, um, which is a biography of C.S. Lewis. You might have heard of C.S. Lewis. Uh, He's one of the most uh, well-known Christian writers of the 20th century. Um, He grew up an atheist, became a Christian, uh, was a don at Oxford University and wrote uh, some great Christian books that you could get your hands on if you're interested. One of them is Mere Christianity. If, if you're thinking uh, you're here this morning and you'd like to know a bit more about what Christianity is about, he's written a book uh, that simply communicates what all Christians believe. Mere Christianity is the book, and it's as good as it was when it first came out. Uh, the screw tape Letters and uh, other Christian books, as well as the Chronicles of Narnia that you might have I read to your kids or seen some of them being made into movies recently. So C.S. Lewis has had a profound effect on me. He was the guy I was reading when I became a Christian when I was 19. And so I've been reading this biography. It's written by Alistair McGrath. It's a a new um, biography. And he mentions from the beginning this experience that C.S. Lewis had, even when he was an atheist, even when he was a child, this experience of deep longing for something more. He says he, he grew up in, in Northern Ireland and he would be out in the countryside in this beautiful, green, uh, mountainous countryside and for a moment or two he would experience this deep, abiding sense of wonderment at the creation around him. 
or he would read a book. He was a vociferous reader. He would read poetry, and, and, he, and for a few moments, he would experience some deep, moving um, transportation in reading uh, a text. And, and, and he would experience it for, for fleeting moments, and then it would be gone. And his whole life from then on, even as an atheist, would be to, to pursue these experiences. It's what he called joy. That he would experience these feelings of joy, but they would be transitory. They would be fleeting. And his whole life was about going after that experience. And when he became a Christian, he, he finally saw that those experiences could only be felt in any kind of lasting way through communion with God, and only ultimately in the life to come would he experience true, lasting joy. That in this life, he was always going to be left longing for more. He was always going to be left feeling empty, a sense of dissatisfaction. And and friends, everyone look at me right now. Everyone in this room this morning feels that way. Everyone in this room this morning feels dissatisfied. Satisfied. If you walked in this morning feeling depressed because you thought you were the only one, right? You've been looking at everyone else's Facebook feed and they seem to be fully satisfied and doing well in every area of life as well as being good looking and having obedient kids and, and making really beautiful cakes for their kids' birthdays and, and, and looking made up all the time and their, their husbands always mowing the lawn and making cups of tea. And what, what, you know, all of those lies that we put out there for everyone else to see. If you came in de- depressed because you're unsatisfied, then just welcome to the club because everyone in this room feels that way this morning. It's a a universal experience of dissatisfaction, of longing for something that we don't have. Now, the entirety, the, 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 the behemoth of Western capitalist economy feeds on this fact, right? The, the world turns on this fact, that you feel dissatisfied. And so every advertising message, every marketing ploy is directed at that truth. Right? Advertisers are smart. All right? They're smart. Uh, it, and they know that the best way to get you to buy something is to make you feel like you need something. You need about 1% of the things you buy at the most, okay? And if you only bought the things that you need, everything would crash down to the ground. And so every advertising message is getting you to say, I really need that, don't I? If I had that, I would feel satisfied. If I just had that thing, I wouldn't have this sense of longing. I wouldn't feel a thirst, a hunger for these things. give you an illustration. I, um, I spent the last six years working on a broken laptop trying to justify buying the best laptop that I could because I had my eye on this Apple MacBook Pro 13-inch retina screen, like top of the range, and I knew I couldn't, I couldn't justify buying that, mainly because I'm, I'm a bit cheap, but I couldn't justify buying that if I'd just bought a new computer recently. So I, I had been working with this broken thing that took an hour to, to, to warm up and then would crash every five minutes. But I, I was willing to do that so I could get the, the thing that would make me finally be satisfied in life. And so I got there at the, at the end of last year. I walked into the Apple store and then 
I did what I always do and I chickened out and didn't want to spend the money. And then my wife just walked up to the guy and said, we need this computer, all right, because I'm sick of dealing with my husband's kind of um, mood swings. All right, so can you get us one of those? And so he got that and I paid for it and I got home. And it was the Messiah that I was hoping for. Um, probably can't say this about too many things, but it was. Um, it saved my life. Um, f- for the first hour or two, it did that. And, and how long did it think it took me before I started yelling at it? A day? Right? It was the best thing I could possibly get. It was optioned up to the max. It cost most of my yearly wage to get it. And then I got it and now it's got some scratches. There's fingerprints all over the screen from my kids or me punching it, right? It's, it's, it's sometimes it freezes and it's just not the thing that I needed. So there must be something else. C.S. Lewis said later in life that if there is a longing for something if I experience a longing for something that nothing can satisfy, then it follows that there must be something that I haven't yet experienced that will satisfy it. And what we do is we believe that and we just keep chasing one thing after another, materialistic thing after another, consumeristic thing after another, trying to abate, trying to slake, trying to satisfy but we find time and time again that we haven't found the thing that does it for us. Can everyone give me an amen, right? Everyone, everyone in the room knows that. Every kid in the room knows that. There's this great um, and frightening text in the, in the book of Jeremiah. I don't know where it is. You can Google it. But Jeremiah says on behalf of God, God says, Be shocked, you heavens. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. He says, my, my people, the people of Israel, they've committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have dug out for themselves broken wells. Broken wells that can hold no water. He says, this, is, this, is shock. this shocks the universe. I am the fountain of living waters. Eternal, free-flowing fountain of living waters. It's free to drink from me. You will never be thirsty again. I am all satisfying. My people have seen me and they have gone and dug a hole in the ground trying to get water. And it's broken. It can't hold any water. All they're getting is dust. And he says, that's evil. And it's shocking. And it's what every one of us does. We have this sense of longing. Most of the people here this morning who are Christians know where that can be satisfied. And instead of going to the fountain of living waters, we dig in the desert. And the wells that we tend to run towards are pretty common for, for all of us. I've got, I've got four major wells that we tend to run to. We tend to dig out for ourselves. And you just... Over the next few minutes as we talk about these things, you just think to yourself, where, do, where am I on this? What, what is it for me? Here's what you're not meant to do. Everyone look at me. Don't go, oh yeah, that's my wife. Mm-hmm. Oh, my kids. 
Oh, don't get me started on my brother. Right? Don't do that. That's our, that's our response because we're proud and we don't want to deal with our own stuff. Kids are in today. Stuff. All right? So just think to yourself, what, where, where do you fit on these things? I've got four things. The first well that we turn to, the first thing we dig is, is self. We turn to ourselves. And this, this is mainly through self-improvement. And so we try and improve ourselves to the point where we won't be broken anymore. We won't be hungry or thirsty anymore. We won't be dissatisfied. So we, we try to make ourselves more attractive. Gyms are full of people who are trying to do this one thing, all right? This is why there are tons of mirrors in gyms. Like, no, it's so I can get the right technique. No, it's not. You're not working on your technique. You're, you're looking at your bulging biceps, all right? We, we look to make ourselves more attractive. This is where a multi-million, billion-dollar cosmetic surgery, cosmetic product industry comes from, Okay? We work to self-improve. We work to be more wealthy than we are right now. We think if we have more money, we'll be more satisfied, which is a barefaced lie. The richest people in the world will tell you that in their more honest moments. Everyone wants more. I've referred to this several times, but the Fin Review did a study in 2011, I think it was, of the, the top earners in Australia. I think you had to have 20 million plus in assets to get on the survey. And they asked the people there, uh, you got 20 million plus, so up to hundreds of millions. Um, how much more do you need? How much more do you, not how much more do you want, how much more do you need? And the average was 25%. People needed about 25% more to be satisfied, to be happy. 20 million minimum. The poor people had 20 million assets and they wanted 25% more. So just don't buy that lie. If you're going to work every day just to get more cash in the bank so that you can feel secure and satisfied, forget it. We do it through making ourselves more attractive, making ourselves more wealthy, buying a bigger house. Caroline Springs, this is us. I need the six-bedroom, but you've got one kid. It doesn't matter. We need... We just need more, all right? We're going three stories now. We're going to put it all on the mortgage. I'm going to spend the next three lifetimes paying this thing off because we need the cinema room if we're going to make it. I won't, if I don't get the cinema room, I'm going, to be, I'm going to have buyer's remorse, all right? So that's what we think. Cars are another, you know, the whole car industry is built on this. Even A to B cars are about status now. And so we turn to ourselves, we turn to self-improvement. I was looking yesterday on the Amazon.com, 100, uh, the top 100 books. Number one is The Doctor's Diet. That's number one. The Doctor's Diet? Self-help books make up a massive majority of that top 100 that gets updated every hour. The Doctor's Diet. That's embarrassing. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a, a bibliophile. That's embarrassing, right? The doctor's diet. We have just about the entire canon of literature that's ever been written at our fingertips to be delivered to our door or wirelessly to our devices, and the doctor's diet is number one. And I've just got this image of being in heaven and really ashamed 
in heaven, like sitting around with people from every age. And, and my view of heaven is mainly talking about books, all right? I'm a bit of a geek. And, and so I'm there, and I'm there with people of every age, and we're talking about the great books of our age. And, and you know, I'm sitting there with... Um, I don't want to be presumptuous about who's there and who's not, um, but, but, but you know, this guy is saying, you know, the greatest book uh, of my time was the Iliad. I'm like, oh, yeah, the Iliad. That, that was awesome. How about you? Uh, uh, for, for us, it was um, Pilgrim's Progress. Wow. Seminal book. The first novel ever written. Amazing. Um, what about you? Uh, the, the Tale of Two Cities. Oh, just gripping. Awesome. Amazing. What about you? Uh, War and Peace. Ah, oh, that is, yeah, one of the greats. One of the greats. Um, Jonathan, how about you? What was, what was, the, what was the, you know, the big book of your time? Uh, well, what was that? The, the best book. The, the, you know, the, the one, the, the, the bestseller. The one that everyone had. Mm, um, that's a hard, that's a hard. Uh, yeah, it was either uh, the, the, do, the Doctor's Diet or Six Minute Abs. I, I'm not sure. It was one of those ones. Just going to go swimming for a few hundred years. It's ridiculous. But that's us. We're going to have to own that one day. I don't know if future generations are going to look back and laugh at us. I'm hoping that's the case. And it doesn't just get worse and worse and worse. But come on. It's ridiculous. And the reason it's a massive industry, and the reason it's number one, and the reason that self-help books come out every hour of the day, a new one, is A, because they don't work, otherwise there'd be just one of them, all right? and B, because we have this sense that we, we, we want to be better. We're empty, and we want to be full, and this will make it work. I just need seven steps to self-actualization. And so we turn to the self. We dig up that well of self-improvement. The next thing we do, um, and you can do all of these or some of these, and you can do them all at once, really, but the, the next thing we do is go to others. And we look to others to, to satisfy our dissatisfaction, to fill up our longing. We do this with our partners, our spouses, our boyfriends, girlfriends. We turn to our partners and we try and, to try and get them to make us feel whole. There has been a massive and profound shift in the last 50 to 100 years in our perception of marriage and probably just relationships in general where we've shifted from having an understanding that, that marriage is God's intention for us to live in harmony with one another for the good of society I'm, I'm paraphrasing the marriage service, hundreds of years old there. Two, I need to find a partner that completes me. Thanks, Jerry Maguire, by the way. Remember that scene? That's an awful scene. You complete me. You complete me. You had me at hello. Right? That's just, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. If you've got that notion, especially young people who are looking to get married, if you've got that notion that you're on the lookout for someone to complete you, that's just ridiculous, all right? There is no one person who will complete you, ever. And if you try to find that, you're going to grab the first Jerry Maguire who says that to you, and within days, weeks, or months, you'll find out that's not the truth. 
and you'll feel brokenhearted and you'll feel cheated. It's a false promise. And it's not just a false promise. If you believe that and you're searching for someone to complete you, you will kill them in the end. No one can bear that weight. No one can bear that weight. No one can bear for you to look them in the eye and say, I need you to complete me. No one is capable of doing that. I sometimes say, you know, women make great wives, they make really bad gods. Women, they're, they're, the, they're the best people in the world to be wives. Alright? They make really bad gods. Husbands too. Husbands are far worse, right? Women already know this though because you've been trying to train him for a few years and he's never going to be a god. Right? <laughs> he's never going to be a god. But we do this. We look for someone to complete us. We, we, we want that person to make us whole. If we don't do it with boyfriends, girlfriends, spouses, partners, husbands, wives, then when we, God forbid we can do it with our kids. Right? We try with our husbands or wives. We turn it, that fails. By the way, that's why there's a massively high divorce rate. Because we go in saying, this person will complete me, and we find out very quickly they don't, and so we move on to someone else. They didn't keep their end of the bargain. And so when that fails, we often turn to our kids and we heap the, the, whole, the pressure of the universe on their shoulders to make us whole. We live vicariously through them. How many dads are taking their kids along to sport every weekend so that they can be what they never were? So that son can finally get in to you know, the first football team because I only made it to the third. So he needs to do what I could never do. I'm going to put that weight on him to live vicariously through him. He's going to be successful and wealthy and do all these things that I never did. We also expect our kids to be a, a kind of perfect partner for us, especially if our, our spouses aren't doing it, then our kids will be that for us. There's this thing um, documented now in psychology called the Gilmore Girls Phenomenon. And so if you know that show from, I don't know, I never watched it, um, <clears throat> Got it on DVD though. Um, no, I don't. Um, but, but it was all about you know, a single mom and a daughter and they weren't just mom and daughter, they were best friends. They were BFFs. And, so that, you know, and, and this phenomenon exists now, especially between daughters and their mothers, where they will not just be uh, mother and daughter, but they will be best buds. And so they'll share clothes, they'll argue about who's hotter, they'll talk about you know, latest trends, they'll go out together for, for dates. And, and so you've got this dynamic whereby... The, the daughter is crafted into the image of the mum's ideal friend. Massive weight of responsibility to fill up what's lacking in that mum's heart. So we do this with others. We look to take what is given by God as a gift, wives and children, and turn them into gods that will satisfy us. And this is a massive temptation for me. I think I spent the first few years of marriage with Renee where we just did this to one another. We just had each other on these pedestals and we worshipped one another as God. We looked for one another to fill us up. And, and then it, it took the painful experience of seeing that we weren't capable of that and then moving through that disappointment to find actually that's not what God intended in the first place. 
I know the temptation to do with, with my kids. I've got a little three-year-old daughter, blonde hair, blue eyes, cute as a button. Yesterday, she comes up to me. She wraps her arms around my neck. She gives me a kiss. Then she puts her nose up against my nose and she just said, Daddy, I really, really love you. Oh, come on. Are you testing me, Lord? I just want to bow down and worship her. She makes me feel awesome. Now, five minutes later, she's going to chuck something at me and my world's going to fall apart if that's my God. So we do it with ourselves. We do it with others. And then we also do it with the world. We do it with created things around us. And these are created things, and this is the paradox, and this is the tension, because these are things that God has created to be good, to be created to be enjoyed. They're good things, not meant to be God things. Okay, so God created everything, He said it's good. He put Adam and Eve in the world to enjoy it, to cultivate it, to be active members of it, to use what's there, but not to worship it. And so what we do is we take the good things that God has given us and we make them into these gods who are there to satisfy us. Just check yourself with this list of things. Food. Who treats food like this? Me. Right? If I'm in my office down there, I'm feeling a little low, there's a Big Mac just over the road, man. And that is the thing that will fix me. For some minutes afterwards. And then I'm going to be hungry again. Somehow McDonald's just sort of disappear. Have you noticed that? Vaporizes in your gut. and So you get another one. Sometimes. But we do with this with food. This is what, where we, we have so much trouble with eating. We have an abundance of food and so we can turn to it whenever we feel down. For that, that, that's a lot of the time for most of us and so we just get this, what is it? Comfort eating. Eat for comfort, eat for comfort. We don't seek comfort in things that will last, but in temporary food satisfaction. Jesus is going to speak directly to that in just a second. So we do it with food. We also do it with alcohol. Again, a good gift given by God. We looked at this when we saw John 2 and Jesus turning water into wine. A good gift given by God to gladden the hearts of men, it says in the, in the Psalms. Something to be received with joy and thanksgiving, an image, a symbol, a representation of God's provision and his prosperity and his closeness and his love and we turn it into drunkenness because the first drink doesn't satisfy and so we take 10 right is where alcoholism can come in and and the paradox is that alcohol ends up what is it a depressant and we end up feeling worse and worse and the cycle goes on so we take a good gift from god and turn it into a god thing with food and with wine, we also do it with sex. Right? Our culture is just besotted with sex. And that's because our culture is so empty. And I've been in ministry long enough, especially youth ministry long enough, and done enough counselling to know whether inside or outside of marriage, if sex is your answer, you end up feeling really, really broken and really, really empty. You end up being a shell. Just listen to some of the testimonies of ex-porn stars or ex-porn addicts. It doesn't satisfy. Again, it's a good gift given by God, not just for procreation, but for pleasure. 
to be enjoyed, to be received with thanksgiving, and yet we turn it into something that will cure all our ills and it doesn't deliver. And so we've got to invent more and more devious and deviant ways of doing it, trying to get ourselves satisfied and it doesn't work. And lastly, we do this with the world itself. We do this with creation. I know this has been a struggle for me over the years because I love creation. I feel ministered to by God in creation and that's his design in creation. But we can also try and make creation into something that will satisfy us. So you get people who are just perennially traveling. It's like they work two months and travel six months over and over. You get a lot of 20-somethings doing this. And they say it's about expanding the mind and discovering new cultures. It's not. It's just trying to fill a void. That's The alibi is, I'm trying to broaden my horizons. The reality is, I feel empty. So I need this experience. I need this new experience. I need to see these new things. My first day on this leave, this leave was all about recharging and recovering from burnout. And so the first day I went out to the Yarra Valley, I went up to Hillsville, a place where I used to spend a lot of time when I lived on that side of the world. I, I, I arrived at the river. It was clear and cold and beautiful. There were fish jumping and the sun was shining. It was dappling the uh, undergrowth and there was uh, this clear view up into the sky where two wedge-tailed eagles were performing a symbiotic dance of love for one another and I just lay down in the grass and looked up at the heavens and felt nothing. And I just got progressively more and more angry because creation wasn't making me feel better. And this perfect, idyllic situation worked out for myself and it wasn't making me feel Satisfied, damn it. Didn't pray, didn't take my Bible, just wanted it to sort of by osmosis get into me and make me feel better. It doesn't work. Creation fails to deliver because it's creation and not the creator. And so you've got food, sex, uh, sorry, food, alcohol, sex, creation, you can name others. And the reason they fail us is because they're not designed to fill us. Here's here's how it's supposed to go for a Christian. See, because an unbeliever can experience all of those things, food, alcohol, sex, creation, and, and they can appreciate those things, right? That's not just for Christians, that's for everyone. That's God's common grace to everyone to experience those things and find enjoyment. But here's where it's different for the Christian. God has designed those things for the believer to experience food, alcohol, sex, creation, and for the praise not to die with those things, not to terminate on those things, but to roll up, to flow on into heaven in praise to God so that you should eat a burger, drink a glass of wine, have sex with your wife or husband, or see an incredible sunset, and, and, and then for you to, if you're going to do it the way God wants you to do it, for the praise of your mouth and the experience of your heart to be going on up to heaven and not just ending in those things. It's not meant to be a fleeting experience that terminates with the experience, but it's meant to cause you to praise and praise and praise the God who created those things. That's where you find satisfaction. 
Again, C.S. Lewis, uh, this just came to mind, so I might get it wrong, but I think it's in his book on the Psalms. He says when he was a, a new Christian, he, he, he read in the Psalms God saying, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. And it said, he said it sounded like an old woman looking for compliments or a vain woman looking for compliments. Like God just feels like an praise me, praise me, like a shallow woman. And then he discovered the truth. And the reason God says that, praise me, is that the enjoyment of the experience is completed in the praise. The enjoyment of the experience of a sunset or food or sex or alcohol is completed, is fulfilled, is magnified, is made stronger when we praise as a result. It's deficient when we just use it for its own ends. It's extended and fulfilled and satisfied when we praise. That's why God wants us to praise Him because He wants us to be satisfied. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, if there's any room on your body left, get these tattoos I'm talking about. Maybe down here, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It's a good life verse right there. It's not that we reject these things, we enjoy enjoy them in the way that God ordained for them to be enjoyed. Rolling on up to praise for the giver. So I said we have four wells that we dig up for ourselves. We've got ourself, we've got others, we've got the world, and the last one is the most insidious, the most evil, the most common perhaps for people in this room, and that is religion. Religion. Religion is a dirty, dry well that we dig up for ourselves trying to find satisfaction for our thirst. We saw this in the book of Malachi when we did that series. If you want to go back to that series, you're going to see the people of God in Malachi's day were, were exercising religion. They were participating in the form of religion and there was no substance to their religion. It was all about doing these things, participating in these rituals, saying these prayers, singing these songs, and there was no heart for God. And so what did God say? I wish you would close the doors of the church. I wish you would lock the doors. I'm sick of your songs. I hate your sacrifices. You go about mourning and weeping and wailing and doing these religious things and I hate it. I'd rather you did nothing. I'd rather you were stay at home and have bacon and eggs and relax then come to church with that in your heart. And so we turn to religion, the form of religion without any of the substance, trying to make our way into God's good books, trying to do enough of the good works, trying to do the religious activity, trying to say the right prayers so that God would accept us, so that we wouldn't have this feeling of guilt. We'll go to confession so that we can keep on sinning, Right? We'll do that thing. 
And it's the most insidious and the most evil thing because it takes what God has designed to be the ultimate satisfaction of our souls and turns it into something that will destroy our souls. We turn to ourselves, we turn to others, we turn to the world and we turn to religion. And all of them will leave us feeling empty in the end. And so I want us to turn now to John chapter 6 and I want to take uh, just the first part of the text this morning and just see what Jesus has to say about this universal sense of longing that all of us feel to be satisfied. And so just to give you a bit of context, the last two sermons and this one all take place on uh, just two days, two-day period. So if you're here two weeks ago with the bishop, he talked about the feeding of the the 20,000 plus people with a a kid's lunchbox. That happened yesterday. Jimmy's sermon uh, from last week, Jesus walking on the lake, just demonstrating his power of creation, uh, his fearlessness. Uh, Jimmy did a great job, didn't he, talking about our fears and and Jesus conquering our fears. Uh, That happened last night and now this morning, this is what happens. Verse 22, why don't you follow with me? On the next day, the crowd uh, that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's the, the sign of the feeding of the thousands. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So that's the context that brings us from yesterday, the feeding of the thousands, overnight, uh, Jesus walking on water, to this passage today. Verse 25 to 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. These people have just experienced what we've been talking about for the last however many minutes. Jesus has performed this great miracle. He's turned a kid's lunchbox into a meal that fed probably twenty to 25,000 people. You know that John said that they not only ate, but they ate their fill. So they're full yesterday. And now they've gone to the trouble to cross the lake, to cross that inland sea, to get to Jesus. And Jesus knows as he looks at them, they just want more food. Because food, no matter how much you have of it, is always going to leave you hungry for more. Just like all the things we've been talking about, they're always going to leave you hungry for more. My dad's here this morning and um, he knows that one of the greatest uh, days of the year when I was growing up was the day that we went to the Sizzler restaurant in Thomastown. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you, you're old enough to remember Sizzler, uh, um, you'll know that it, you know, it was all you can eat. 
there was like a, a salad bar and a, a dessert bar. And so we used to, used to turn up as teenage boys and just destroy it, like just decimate that thing. And um, just, you know, piles of plates and bowls spilling off the table. Every, three, you know, three teenage boys, it didn't stand a chance. And, um, and, you know, we would starve ourselves for the day. Dad would let us know ahead of time so that we could sufficiently starve ourselves leading up to that time and um, we'd just gorge ourselves and, and, and have competitions to see who could eat the most. It's pretty disgusting now that I think about it. But invariably, without fail, the next morning I would wake up feeling deeply, deeply hungry. I think the science of it is that you just expand your stomach out so far that now it just wants twice as much food all the time. So you just wake up Famished. That's exactly what these people have experienced today. They've had their fill, and so they've come to Jesus to fill them up again. And, and you, can kind of ex- you can kind of see the, the, um, the reasoning behind it. These are people who live hand-to-mouth. They live in an agrarian society. Um, food is not cheap. Today they say we spend about 20% of our money on food. In that day, it was about 80% of their money went on food, on basic bread, to, just to get by. And so if there's a guy who turns up and can give it to you for free, then I guess, you know, why not? But the point is that these signs, as John has been telling us, are meant to point people to the reality of the deity of Jesus. And he sees them, and they're not interested in his deity. They're not interested in him being the saviour of the world. They're not in, interested in him as the Messiah and the king of the universe, they just want more bread. And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus isn't shy about telling it like it is. You are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he says, and this is what we all need to hear, do not labor for the food that perishes. Every one of us here, most of our lives are spent laboring for the food that perishes. Am I right? And food here is just a metaphor for everything that we labor for. Remember that shiny new car that you bought in 1993 that's now on the scrap heap? You labored for that thing and it's perished. That meaning to be rude. If you are laboring, spending the preponderance of your week at the gym or at the surgery, trying to get yourself to look good, that is, a, that is an uphill battle, guys. That's one you're going to lose. One day you're going to be at the gym looking in the mirror and everything's just going to be around your ankles. Okay? That's just the reality. Have you seen some of those guys? They're still going at the gym and it's like they look like the bird man, right? That, that's a battle you're going to lose. I'm not saying don't keep healthy. Of course. But if you are laboring with everything you have for that, that's the food that perishes. I was going to say something about sex, but I won't, all right? I've, I've, uh, yeah, I've been away, so. Um, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. There is a food that will satisfy you eternally. There is a food that will give you eternal satisfaction. Jesus is going to tell us about that in just a sec. 
Their response to him is telling, and it picks up on one of our points that we've just talked about. Verse 28, they say, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Isn't that interesting? They see what he means. They see that he's trying to get them to think about eternal things and not just temporary things. So they're they're seeing, they're trying to get it. Their response to that, their way of getting at that food that doesn't perish is to ask, what do we got to do? That is the default response of everyone on the earth. What must I do? That's why Christianity is so just mind-blowingly different to every other religion. Every other religion attempts to answer that question. Well, here's what you've got to do. Here's the list of 10,000 things, and this is just the stuff you're not allowed to eat, right? Then you'll need to go on this pilgrimage, say these prayers, make sure you're facing this way, right? Wear this special kind of underwear if you're a Mormon, which is hilarious, right? Knock on these doors, do these things. That's what every other religion, that's their answer. What must you do? I'm glad you asked. Here's a whole book of things. Jesus' answer is cataclysmic. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe. That you believe in him whom he has sent. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who comes to church on Sunday wears the right kind of knitted vest, never cheats on their taxes, eats the right food. That would be our answer. But Jesus says that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. What are the works of God? That you believe in Him who He has sent. And so where religion falls apart and never delivers on its false promises, Jesus says, believe in Me and you will be satisfied forever. Do you believe that this morning? And if you believe that this morning like I do, then why, oh why, oh why, do we continually and constantly run after these things and labor for the bread that perishes and look for the answer in every place except the all-satisfying Son of God in the fountain of living waters, in the bread of life. God, help us. God, help us so that our default response is to run to Him. In Christ alone, my hope is found. And so that's his response. Forget your empty religion. Have faith in the one whom God has sent. Have faith in me. And so it goes on, verse 30 to 34. Let's read that together. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Right? If we don't need to do works, what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So they go to their history now. They go to their Old Testament history, and we won't go into it in detail, but you might remember they've been... Uh, the people of Israel walking around the wilderness 40 years after being taken through the exodus out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. They're starving in the wilderness through their hard-heartedness and rebellion, their lack of trust in God, and rather than just let them die, God gives them manna from heaven. Uh, no one knows what it was. The word manna literally means, what is it? Um, which is a good description because they didn't know what it was, but it was a bit like bread and it made them full. So that was God's gracious provision to them to keep them alive. And they're saying, listen, Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. What are you going to do? And through the New Testament, you'll see this contest between Moses and Jesus. And the New Testament is very keen that we know, and especially the first century Jews know, Jesus is greater than Moses. And Jesus says as much when he says, it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread. It was my Father that gave you the bread and that gives you the bread, the capital B bread. That's me, the all-satisfying bread of heaven that will satisfy you forever. And their response is a good one. Verse 34, give us this bread always. They recognize their dissatisfaction. They recognize that they're empty. They want bread that will satisfy them forever. Give us this bread. They still don't get it, but they want it. And so Jesus says to them, verse 35, I am... I am, I am the bread of life. You're going to see the word life littered through the book of John. And it means not just life in the here and now, but eternal life. Life at its fullest. John 10.10, I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life now and forever. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How much do we need that this morning? But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Hear that this morning if you doubt it. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. There is a ton of theology that I'm just restraining myself from diving into there when it comes to irresistible grace and the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of election. I'm just going to jump over that and stick with the theme that we're on because I've only got two hours to talk to you this morning. I'm kidding. I don't have that long. The point I want to highlight from what Jesus says is that I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Those two words, I am should signal to us his deity, 
God himself explained himself that way to Moses, remember, in the burning bush. I am that I am. I am who I am. I am. Simply I am. The uncreated, supreme God of the universe. And Jesus says, I am. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You this morning who are hungry, who are thirsty, who are unsatisfied, who are empty, who are void, Jesus just said, if you come to him, you'll never be hungry. You'll never be thirsty. Does that mean you'll never be depressed? You'll never experience despair? No. That's the nature of this life. It's the nature of living in a sinful and fallen world. I can testify to experiencing those, those feelings myself and recently. But the absence of joy isn't evidence for God's absence. God is with us. He is our all-satisfying Saviour and He will be ultimately in eternal life. I am the bread of life. And so what are you going to do with this this morning? It's one thing to hear all these things and maybe some of the stuff I've been talking about kind of resonates. Maybe you identify with that universal feeling that that really all of us experience, that feeling of emptiness. Maybe you can even see that that Jesus might be the answer, but the, the question is, how are you going to respond? Whenever Jesus makes declarations like this, there are always respondents. There are always people who either walk towards him or away from him. That is the uh, universal experience of people who hear Jesus. The one thing you can't do is remain where you are when you're confronted with Jesus' words. So what are you going to do? There are three ways you can respond to this and we see it in the text. First of all, there are the deniers. Then there are the deserters. And then there are the disciples. Deniers, deserters, disciples. What are you going to be this morning? Let's look at the deniers, verse 41 to 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven. They deny him. They dismiss him. We know this kid. He used to pick his nose in temple, right? We know this kid. He's the son of a carpenter. He's nothing. He hasn't been to Bible college. He's not wearing the robes that we're wearing. Now he says he's the bread that comes down from heaven. What's going on? They dismiss him. He's just a man. Might have a few good ideas. A lot of people say this. This is their response. Jesus was a good guy, but he's not God. So they dismiss. They deny. Then there are those who hear what Jesus is all about in reality and desert him. Verse 66. Skip ahead there. After this, after hearing what Jesus says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. 
after hearing what he had to say, after hearing about his true mission, about what he's really about, they turn away from him. What, Jesus, you're not just about feeding us? You're not just about making us feel good? You don't want to know how many Christians I'm doing these quote marks, if you're listening on audio. Christians who prove themselves never to have been Christians, who desert Jesus some point along the way because they came to Jesus looking for some kind of piñata that they could smack around and get treats from, who they thought was some kind of fairy who would grant them wishes. And the church they went to, or the books they read, said that Jesus was about giving them stuff. Jesus was about making them rich and giving them cars and women and good looks and two well-defined eyebrows. Alright? And there are whole churches built on this theology. Come to Jesus, He will give you what you want. And suddenly our church has 10,000 people. Who would have known? Like, why stop there? Just do free beer, strippers. Like, you, you will pack the place out. Jesus is for strippers. Jesus loves free beer. And you can twist the message any way you like, and you will get a big following. These people have come to Jesus because they misinterpreted what he was about. They thought he was about giving them stuff, whether it be healing or f- bread. And when they hear what he's on about... When they hear that he's about eternal things, they turn away from him. So they desert him. Is that you this morning? Are you hearing this message and it seems a bit hard and you just want to leave? You're a little bit too polite to do it in the sermon, but straight afterwards you're going to leave and you're going to desert Jesus. Is that you? There are those who are deniers, there are those who are deserters, and then there are disciples. This is my last point, guys. Stay with me for this. Verse 67 to 69. So Jesus, after these guys have deserted him, he said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? There's the door. I'm not about having a big church. I'm not about being the most famous man in the universe, though I will be eventually. There's the door. Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, he's like the spokesman of the disciples. He's the the natural-born leader. He steps up and he answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Good answer. To whom shall we go? Should we go back to food? Should we go to alcohol? Should we spend our lives running after sex? Should we just go and worship created things? Should we labor for the food that perishes? Can we just spend our whole lives chasing satisfaction? We can't because you have the words of eternal life. We believe that you are the Holy One. You're the all-satisfying Savior of our souls. Yes, your teaching is hard. It's, it's going to kill us in the end. Ten of the eleven are going to be killed for their faith. 
We're going to give up everything for your sake. But where else are we going to go? Is that your attitude this morning? I don't know if it's my attitude, but God, I want it to be. Where else am I going to go? We're going to go to Hillsville? Going to go to the West Waters? Sizzler? They still have them in Queensland, by the way. Am I going to get on my wife, my kids? Am I going to put that burden on them? Am I going to go to you guys? Just make sure more of you turn up next week and I'll feel better. Okay, there are empty seats and, and that makes me feel empty. Am I going to turn to the church? It's part of the reason I burnt out. I need you guys to make me feel good about myself. Where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You are the bread of life. You are the satisfaction of our souls. I don't know if we can say that this morning, but I'm going to pray now that that would be true of us as we continue to meet together and feast on all that God has for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your teaching is hard. The way of discipleship is friggin' hard. And you said as much. You said that unless we deny ourselves and take up our crosses, we cannot be your disciple. You said to us before we become your follower that we must count the cost. You said that you weren't interested in massing sheep who would be led this way and that. You want disciples who are sold out, who would give up lands and mothers and fathers and wives and children to follow you, who would let the dead bury their own dead, who would give up their livelihood, their fishing nets, and come and follow you, who would give up their very lives to be faithful to you, Lord, we're mindful of our brothers and sisters around the world who are doing that even as we speak. More Christians tortured, more Christians killed in the last hundred years than in every century beforehand combined. Lord, there are those in the world today who do not deny and do not desert, but rather are disciples of yours. May we be like them. Lord, will you be gracious to use this church as a gym, as a spiritual gymnasium? Because so many of us are weak. We're weak. We're easily defeated. We're easily discouraged. And we want to be strong. We want to be disciples. We want to be Simon Peter who stands up and says, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We want to feast on the bread of life so that we're not hungry or thirsty. We want to stop digging wells in the desert so that we can drink our fill at the fountain of living waters. God help us. We pray that you would use our services to be feasts like Sizzler-style feasts 
smorgasbords of your goodness and your blessing, your means of grace. We pray that our small groups during the week, our growth groups, would strengthen us like a trip to the gym. That our prayer life would be strong and continual. That our time spent in the Word would be strengthening and edifying. That our conversations would be seasoned with salt and not just focused on asinine, meaningless stuff for the, the bread that perishes. Help us to use our money, Lord. Like you say, to heap up treasures where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Lord, make us a church with an eternal perspective, always looking to you, always finding our satisfaction in you. And even now, I pray that as we reflect on these things, that you would fill us up with your Holy Spirit, that you would satisfy us this morning and every day as we seek to follow you, our all-satisfying Saviour. And we pray it in Jesus' good name and the entire church of God said, Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.